Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Hello, hello. How are you, Beth? Hey, Renske. I'm pretty good, thanks. I'm feeling a little stressed today. We just... Uh... We're kind of like in the middle of a complicated move. Um, my parents are very kindly putting me up, but that's like seven-ish hour drive away from where I normally live. So, it's, uh, yeah. so we fought for today because our guest Esther Ramsey Jones is an associate lecturer at Open University. We thought we would talk a bit more about our jobs. So, Beth, you're also an associate lecturer at the Open University, right? I am definitely am. Yeah, it's great. I, I for me, it's a, it's a really good fit. So it was great to have someone else who's doing the same sort of role. Um, on I think Esther works in different faculty on some different modules. To me, I teach predominantly interdisciplinary arts and humanities subjects. So English literature, creative writing, lots of things like bits of classical studies and art history. So those sort of early in your degree interdisciplinary modules and then later on some more specialist English literature things as well as some some very interdisciplinary stuff at access level and at first year level where students are engaging with all sorts of online open resource learning sorts of things so a wide range of modules I find it very rewarding I teach some English language studies as well so it keeps me busy teaching lots of different modules and it was a bit of a step away from my previous job which was a more traditional teaching and research contract at a university where you know I was full-time and working teaching and research and you get given like x amount of responsibilities and work and meetings and course leaderships and all sorts of things like that which was both enjoyable but also quite intense and quite meeting heavy and my current role I am paid my salary my annual salary is for teaching only though I do have a research role as well that's honorary so I don't have to do any research stuff as part of my contract and I found the flexibility of that has been fantastic for having a young family because I can very much manage my own workload I can work from where you know here I'm working at the moment from from my parents house in North Wales I can as long as I keep up with my marking my student feedback my teaching those sorts of things I can do things in quite a flexible manner and I really enjoy the opportunities at the Open University to teach students in secure environments, to work with a wide range of students of all different ages and people coming, you know, they're working full time. Some people might not be working, they might be studying full time. It's just that the mix is fantastic. It's been a nice learning experience in contrast to the university that I used to work at as well. So though I love my old job, I also love my new job, which is a great privilege. And then I do a bit of work as well as some people know for the academic journal mortality where I'm the assistant editor there so that also adds a bit more variety and, and is a really flexible role so yeah I think similarly to Esther our guest today who who also has multiple jobs I think it's quite common now maybe to have more than one thing going on people use the word side hustle and I don't really like it um, I just have multiple I also I didn't realize until the other day that I, I'm I'm learning Swedish at the moment and the course is actually offered as an open university course. But I don't know if it's slightly different here that I think every university offers open university courses. So there isn't a open university, but it's just 
some courses are part of an open university, a lifelong learning kind of initiative, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. And what's your current work situation? So I mainly teach Dutch language because uh, surprisingly there's quite a number of Dutch people living in Finland. I think overall around 1,500 people. And in the Helsinki region, there are so many that there is uh, a Dutch school, an NTC school, which is supported by the Dutch government. So I teach on Saturdays in the Dutch system, grade four. So they're like roughly eight years old. And then I also teach Dutch as a mother tongue in three municipalities, because by law, if your mother tongue is not Finnish, your school needs to offer your mother tongue for two school hours each week. And as as I said, there's quite a number of mixed families or both families are Dutch or one of them is Dutch or one of them is from Belgium. So it's a part-time job, but I'm mainly <laughs> teaching my own language to kids and I, I really enjoy it. And as you say, I so I basically, I have four employers at the moment. I'm still also curious about academia or research. So it is something I'm also exploring as well because I still have more hours in the week to do other jobs as well. But my main paid job is teaching. And then I have (laughs) the podcast and my blog and I do loads of little things. But a lot of the things I do at the moment are unfortunately unpaid. I enjoy them, but I'm looking for more opportunities for paid roles as well. I know that. Quite a lot of the stuff I do is unpaid but really enjoyable. So I, I try and have like this, I actually keep like a spreadsheet of everything I do and I write next to it, paid or voluntary. And some of it is paid, but it's paid pretty poorly. So it's I kind of do it partly for the love of it or because it's really good for my CV longer term. For example, I do quite a lot of extended examining other institutions, but the pay isn't great, but it can offer you the opportunity to to travel to different places across the UK which is nice and then other stuff where it's the substantial part of my my income comes from these sort of two main jobs so that's really of course they have to be my main focus of my time and energy which is it's a great privilege that I enjoy them and I can always tell you really enjoy your Dutch teaching because you send me a lot of messages after classes and things being like oh this happened today like and it just sounds great And, and you're so wonderful with my kids, I, I can imagine how great you must be at it, which is really nice. And I think you can see the kind of synergies between the sort of teaching you're doing and, and what teaching, I guess, just as is, as a skill set, it really doesn't matter necessarily what, what age you're working with, though there's different things called upon for, for different age groups. There's also that kind of set of ideas. But before that, you were in a research-only role, weren't you? Which I, I've never done that. I've never been in a, a research-only role. And that sounds like that's a different set of challenges maybe but also super rewarding yeah I agree like I was a postdoc for three years at the University of Surrey doing a research project on cancer care in prison and yeah I I think in many ways I had the luxury of being a hundred percent research fellow and I'm not sure if it's a UK thing that you have research fellows and teaching fellows but on the one hand I really loved it that it was research only and I could develop uh, skills and uh, do this project and really engage with one thing whereas I know a lot of lecturers or other people in research they do multiple projects and are a bit more pulled in different directions and so I enjoyed I just had this focus on one project and could really go into depth but also 
I would have loved to have gone more into teaching during that role as well. So I did supervise a master's student, but I also now find like looking for other jobs, they often ask very specific questions about teaching and it was specifically university jobs that they kind of expect you to do everything. But it's also so dependent on which country you work in and what roles you have and what is expected of you. Because I also, when I was uh, studying, there were just people doing teaching and people doing research. But increasingly, uh, I did my undergraduate and master's at the University of Amsterdam. I think increasingly they wanted people to do everything. And I was thinking teaching is a skill. Research is a skill. I've been taught by people who weren't good at teaching. I'm sure they were good researchers. But I also think not everyone should be forced to do everything. I think people should also be allowed to develop and explore the things they're good at. Yeah. And what brings you, you know, joy and passion or what suits you? Mm. So there are people who are a bit more generalist who want to do a bit of everything. I've really, one of the things I've really liked about having a role that is teaching only in terms of, of my pay has been that I feel absolutely no pressure to make the research I do fit any criteria mold or I just do what I want to do so it's really nice to be able to research with you and to have this kind of broader arts and humanities understanding of of the sorts of things I might write and how I think about academic writing and publishing and I tend to not use the word research as much not because I don't think that it is research but it's just not how I conceptualize it per se though some of the projects I'm working on you know other people in the team would conceptualize it that way but I guess because I'm doing it, what is essentially in my, I'd say in my own time, rather than because because no one's paying me to do it. But ultimately, I think we've had this conversation before you and I have in my previous role where I was on a teaching forward slash research contract, you know, sort of sort of split. I was always working so, so, so many hours that ultimately I was doing all of my research in, in my own time anyway, because the demands of the job aside from that was so so much so that that I didn't really have the time to do it so I think it's a very complicated thing and as you say it's also quite country specific it's quite person specific we know a lot of people have had the great privilege of lots of people on this podcast I'm thinking for example of Helen Frisbee Dr Helen Frisbee doing um working in a professional services role at a university but continuing to research as an independent researcher and I think that that role of the independent researcher is something I'm quite interested in as a as an idea and how that sits and functions alongside other institutional roles and why people might choose to do that and, and, and that be a choice rather than a sort of something that comes about simply because someone can't get a research job. They may actively choose not to want the pressures of that kind of role. But I think, again, that's quite discipline specific and, as you say, quite specific to, to places. I'm thinking of the work you did as a postdoctoral research fellow working specifically with prisons and how vitally important that project is and how that probably needs that structure of someone who's dedicated purely to doing it and, and that's sort of perfect for that that particular thing I think because it needs that that energy that time that ability to travel around that emotional investment as well. No I agree it's definitely something that you need and I, I've also seen it now that there's still things that need to be done on this project but also with funders you they often fund a postdoc for X amount of years and people try to write funding proposals that are competitive. So also, as you say, not all of the job can be done in the time of the job. So even though I was 100% involved in one project, there is still always more you can do or 
explore or research. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I'm also thinking today with our guest Esther. So she is an associate lecturer and also a therapist. So I think that is a really interesting combination as well to have the teaching and the therapeutic side of a job, which I'd never really thought about of combining. <laughs> and I bet it makes a fantastic combination, really, because these wonderful psychotherapy skills and these wonderful teaching skills can fit alongside each other, though she makes the great point when we ask for some advice at the end about some of the tensions between being a psychotherapist and then being asked for advice because it's not the, the role that you give. <laughs> but I guess seeing teaching as about facilitating, prompting reflection, supporting learning fits kind of quite well with it. And I also think Esther's interview is is really thoughtful in terms of some of the questions she asks of us as listeners of why are you interested in that? Like, why do you want to do that? Reflect on why you've made the choices you've made and why you might want to and wh- where that's coming from as, as a really nice kind of foray into us thinking about the choices we've made in our careers. So it's been great to listen back to this one. I think we recorded in March last year. So it, it's really nice to have had time to... And interestingly, similar stuff has stood out for me listening back as to what did when I listened and spoke to Esther the first time. So I, I look forward to talking to you about that at the end of this interview. Esther Ramsey-Jones is a practicing psychodynamic psychotherapist and lecturer in counselling and psychotherapy at Burbeck College, University of London. She also tutors on the Open University's Death, Dying and Bereavement module and is engaged as a team member in two related research projects. She has worked in dementia and end-of-life care for many years, currently facilitating reflective practice with hospice at home staff. Her books, Holding Time, emerge from her PhD work on the relational field in dementia care and The Silly Thing follows her mother's experience of living and dying with brain cancer. She's also a mom. We really hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to the podcast today, Esther. We're very excited to have you here. You are an associate lecturer at the Open University on the module Death, Dying and Bereavement, and you are a practicing psychotherapist specialized in palliative psychotherapy and grief work. Could you tell us a bit about those roles and what brought you to the field of death and dying? The work in the OU really is a sort of tutoring role, mainly involved in encouraging students to engage with distance learning. The focus of the course is thinking about the way in which we might conceptualise death and what might feed into that. The discourses, you know, which are embedded in culture, ideology even, but also the more sort of personal psychological experiences that someone might undergo in the face of a terminal diagnosis. So it's a it's a very sort of transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach really to death and dying. The area in the module that I think I've got sort of the greatest relationship is looking at the grief and bereavement. But even that is, you know, a two-stranded approach, really, sociological and also psychological models enabled to, you know, help the, the students understand the processes and, and not really to get caught up in thinking about it too sort of individualistically. So I remember listening to one of your earlier podcasts, Dr. Kate Withprot, and she was talking about, you know, this sort of 
move from perhaps the uh, interiority of experience into something more social. And I, I guess in some ways the course is quite psycho psychosocial in its approach, but it also looks very much at social policy and notions of practice policy gaps. Um, so many of the students actually on that course are frontline health and social care workers. So they have got buckets of experiential learning to bring to the course. And so part of the work also is pastoral. You know, it's about supporting people um, in their learning experience. And I think I feel quite strongly about that because I work in health and uh, well, palliative care, but I have a background in, in social care. And I think I've spent a long time, you know, in sort of emotionally supportive roles to staff teams and recognising the tensions of the work, the emotional labour involved in the work, and also the sort of societal undervaluing of care. And so I feel like I'm in a good place in terms of supporting, you know, healthcare professionals, frontline professionals also to engage in academic academic fields as well. So so that's really the, the work of associate lecturing at the OU. In terms of palliative psychotherapy, again, I think my part of my role is is also organizational. So I'm also I'm qualified as a psychodynamic organizational therapist. So I see my role partially again in that kind of offering spaces where uh, health and social care staff are able to process the work they're doing. So to think clinically about the emotional experience of their patients and their families, but also the way in which their own emotional experience may be stirred up in conjunction with that of others. And then to think a little bit more bro broadly at times, although I think there is an avoidance, generally speaking, in organisations to give thought and certainly to articulate difficulties around sort of historic and material reality, but sometimes to see where class, race, gender is intersecting in all of that. So, you know, I feel very strongly that, you know, organisations need reflective spaces in order to carry on, to carry on being in one's professional role, but to carry on doing the work. So that's often part of my job, but I also work a lot, you know, with family members with people who are terminally unwell so there's was a, a shift at least in our organization from working in a hospice environment you know in, in very beautiful grounds there was a certain you know there a quality of sanctuary let's say and a real sort of the even the building itself sort of you know emanated a sense of care the valuing of life. We moved pre-pandemic into a community hub. So the service itself has changed very much. There are sort of increased home visits, increased online working. I mean, part of that was sort of expedited in, in the pandemic. So some of the work involves group spaces with people who are bereaved or caring. And, you know, they can be sort of teetering on the friendly at times so sometimes they're not sort of strictly psychotherapeutic but there is nonetheless this engagement with 
uh, people's, you know, emotional experience as they move through sort of states of relative wellness, states of relative independence to greater dependency, let's say, and, and how very difficult that is to encounter. So that's, that's oftentimes the work that I'm involved in. Great. And you wrote a lovely chapter in the Narratives of COVID edited volume that was edited by Erica Borgstrom and Sharon Mellon. And your chapter was entitled Finding a Home in the Homelessness and in which you reflect on that change of online working and working in a pandemic. So can you talk a bit about that feeling of homelessness? Yeah, I think collectively across the globe, and I don't want to sound you know, too sort of godlike in my understanding of what's gone on in the pandemic. But I think we were in generally collectively in states of very heightened anxiety. You know, people were leaving workplaces, you know, those which one of my major interests, those in care homes, doors were becoming locked. So the whole notion of our, our sense of location in times of time and space was kind of there was a certain there was a real upheaval I think in terms of where now might we be safe and in our organization there was an actual relocation going on simultaneously and so already there was a real sense of us losing our base you know from a psychological point of view to go to the work of let's say John Bowlby, he talks about the, the real need, certainly of infants, to have a, a secure base in a, in a parental figure from which one can explore the world, you know, to be curious about the world, to engage in it. And I think there was a sense of, well, how do we continue to engage, let's say, with our work when the base of it is out of reach? Now, it would have been out of reach anyway because there was a planned relocation, but it felt as though that was intensely speeded up. So the goodbye to this incredible building, the goodbye to our colleagues, it, it simply wasn't possible. So there was something quite difficult to sit with in terms of being a palliative psychotherapist because we're working always with trying to give real thought reflection to an ending and so that that in itself wasn't wasn't possible so I think it left many of us in a state of sort of slightly extended mourning anyway and so home had to get reconfigured I think psychically and virtually and that's what happened sort of uh, from the bottom up, if you like, we started to recognize that, yes, home in part was this building and all the sort of conversations that would happen informally in corridors, but there were actual real spaces, you know, where people could sort of write in the book of condolences, let's say, light up a candle for someone that they'd been truly affected by on the ward. So there were real concrete spaces. I think what it did, the pandemic, the heightened anxiety, the sense of being adrift and disconnected made many of us sort of separately, I would say, begin to realize how valuable we were to one another. 
that home, yes, was in the building, but home was also in the relational. And so that's what happened. People sort of on email started to talk about, oh gosh, you know, how, how do we gather? How do we gather ourselves? So we started just creating virtual reflective spaces. And so the curious thing is, is that perhaps there was a greater sense of intimacy that started to emerge despite the distance. And I think that was bearing out in the real world as well at times. Not always, because of course, one of the other parallel processes that's been going alongside in the pandemic, in the heightened anxiety, is people in fact splitting, let's say, and becoming quite divisive as a way of managing anxiety. Uh, and I think palliative care is often sort of slightly elevated in the mind as as being a kind of place of niceness. But in this instance, I think there was some truth truth to that. I really like that. I also like I did my PhD on the meaning of home in the lives of older people. So and I also argue in that like home is is more than a place or a space. And I really like the concept of homemaking. So we make a home. It's it's an active process. And I think in the pandemic it was really clear. Yeah, a lot of that process is also leaving the house and going somewhere. So to be confronted with just being at home all the time was nice, but also a shock for some. And you wrote a book entitled The Silly Thing, Shaping the Story of Life and Death. What inspired you to write this book and what is it about? Gosh, well, back when I'm terrible with dates, <laughs> back in Boxing Day 2019, we got a call that my mum had uh, had a seizure. At the time, we thought this was a, a stroke and she was, she was blue lighted to a hospital quite locally. It transpired after several weeks that actually we weren't dealing with a stroke, we were dealing with a, a glioblastoma. And mum's, what happened on in Boxing Day is that in fact she lost her all verbal fluency. So she was, she was making sounds really. And my dad really struggled to sort of see in his wife, you know, she'd always been... <laughs> She's an English teacher, so she loved words. She played with words all the time. I think it was it was extremely difficult for him to see literally this this huge huge change. You know, oh, in moments, you know, she was in many ways pre-verbal, and you know, something very sort of primordial was coming from her, which obviously was fear. So when I met her in the hospital it really reminded me of a lot of the work I'd done working in care homes with people with, with dementia. So there was this constant sitting with her and trying to translate what she was trying to express to us. But how did it how did it come about? I think I tend to go to writing generally as a sort of way of making sense of experience. But her being an English teacher or as well, once she had uh, received steroids her her speech started to come back and she sort of said to me constantly if you can do anything with this experience you know there was a sort of sense in her I think which was quite curious so it was hard to think of whether she was thinking about legacy in all of this in retrospect is there something you know I remember her you know being adamant that 
that her brain would be go would go to further research. So there was something about making use of of her dying, and so she insisted that I try to to write about this, you know, with the view to to helping other people to learn about brain cancer. So there was a sort of, I think, on one sense, there was something about her memory continuing this idea of legacy which was possibly to do with her fear of being forgotten let's say but I think there was something also really quite generous in it uh, there was there was my own compulsion I think to record my mum's voice on a very personal level because one of the things I've often encountered in people who are grieving is they you know have iPhones full of photographs, perhaps books that they can flip back through. People often say, I wish I could hear them again. I would do anything to hear. I had that, I think, reverberating in my mind as well, capture of much of this voice as, as I can. So, th I mean, this is what we, it was really strange. And I think there is something about synchronicities in life. If you pay close attention to them, the year before my husband had bought her a dictaphone. She was a huge storyteller as well. In order to start recording stories of, you know, her own life, and anyway, she didn't get round to it. So, but we got this dictaphone out. So that's that's how it how it came about. But I think it's also it was also about a, a, a you know a sort of real intense compulsion to write because you know anticipatory grief I think is extremely arduous you know you notice all manner of conflicting feeling in yourself so I think I had fantasy of this will help me with my grief I think that was real fantasy because I think although writing seemingly appears to help you to make sense of things and to uh, reclaim you know to, to reintegrate disparate feeling I actually think it was one way of me avoiding grieving so which I hadn't bargained for. <laughs> that is so interesting because reading it, I, it, to me, it really feels like something that could definitely help others untangling and unpacking their grief and all those complex feelings. And in the book you write, and I'm going to read a bit of a longer excerpt, uh, psychotherapists in palliative care are no less exposed to the opposing feelings of their clients towards their spouses and parents and other family members than practitioners in other sessions. The only perceivable difference is that we are often working with the explicit awareness of the ticking clock. So often there is a sense of urgency involved in providing time, space and thought to people to disentangle the feelings in order to support relationships undergoing not only change, but termination. And in this book, you write about your own experience and also your practice uh, of working with people dying. So could you tell a bit about that, experiencing personally what you do professionally? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's important to sort of state that I, I practice psychotherapy through a particular lens to a particular set of understandings and theory which is which is psychodynamically oriented so think classically of the work of people like Sigmund Freud, Melanie Klein, Winnicott and so forth although 
there, you know, even within that, there are slightly, you know, nuanced, different schools of, of thinking. So, a, so a practitioner who is, you know, qualified, let's say, in cognitive behavioral therapy or person-centered, they might be, be coming at this from a slightly different angle. But in terms of these processes, perhaps of integration, you know, is that sometimes you know, many of us have parts of ourselves which we are either in some kind of denial of or we disavow, um, you know, some aspect of ourselves, which is which is not, you know, sort of uncommon in the work of therapies. How do we, you know, sit at ease with this sort of multiplicity, if you like, of selves and bring them together in such a way that perhaps we are not overly self-critical or punitive and so on and so forth and so I think some of the work that that I often do is is it, for instance you know there may be and, I, and I'm thinking about this particularly also let's say through the le- lens of gender you know uh, a sort of male client who may come with a particular sense of what it is to be male so has been brought up and sort of the discourse of boys don't cry has been naturalized within the family unit. There has been a sort of punitive parental approach, which is also linked, let's say, to a sort of punitive societal discourse. And yet the client is also dying, okay? But feels that they cannot cry. They cannot soften. They cannot encounter their vulnerability and so the work might be being about how how is it possible to allow yourself to re- relinquish that rather internal punitive voice to begin to allow oneself to trust in another. So another being maybe a, a partner, maybe a professional, maybe the palliative organization, let's say. How, how does that sort of capacity for developing trust on another substantially enough to engage with one's own vulnerability and we might say which is also linked to having less fear of one's own dependency. So it's about reclaiming parts of oneself that has been split off if you like to consciousness but there's a certain urgency I think to that. But equally, I think the important thing is, is that that might be my understanding as a therapist. That may not be the client's understanding either. And so it's also about, in some ways, being respectful of the defenses we might employ through the life course that have held us together. So in other words, in that instance, in that instance, you may not be thinking about bringing someone into contact with their own vulnerability because actually what has allowed someone to function in life had been that very employment of defences against vulnerability and dependency. It, it, you know, that's an example, I think. But I think, you know, I'm really also interested in notions of dependency and what we, what we do with that, particularly perhaps in Western neoliberal times and how that has become in itself a kind of dirtied word it's so fascinating to listen to you Esther thank you so much for for coming on and sharing these ideas with us Um, I have a lot of 
tricky conversations with, with my own mother sometimes around this like fear of being a burden, becoming a burden. Um, that yeah, I, I find really challenging because it's it, it is a really difficult thing. But what we'd like to ask you now, Esther, is is about this book still shaping the story of life and death continuing on this one you speak in that work about working with younger people who are undergoing palliative care as as well as with older people and we wondered if there are any very significant differences in terms of your role providing palliative psychotherapy for younger people compared to older people you know in some ways i, I struggle to to not think about this also societally in the sense that I mean older people often I think are laden with societal projections in that sense of decline inactivity so on so forth and of course that is part of the aging process that the body itself may go into decline at some point it may be that cognition is not operating at such high speed but it's also a way, perhaps, in terms of society, or those of us that are able-bodied or relatively young, although I think increasingly that's not the case for me, but that perhaps you can, again, to this idea of sort of disavowal, you know, you can sort of project all your own fears of your own sort of impending dependency or, uh, you know, fragility and locate it in older people. So I want to set that up by by saying that categorically. So in other words, you know, it's an expected thing. It's it's okay for older people to be in a state of decline. We can cope with that. We can accommodate it in my, our minds. If you think in a kind of Foucauldian way, the order of things, the natural order of things. But um, I think therefore what happens when we're met with younger people you know, particularly people who are, you know, who may be parents of, of young children as well. I think what it does certainly organisationally, it stirs up huge amounts of anxiety. Now, understandably so, because I think oftentimes there's an identification in the staff team. You know, men, many people have younger children. So there's a kind of sense of an awareness which may have been sort of pushed out of consciousness of, of our own mortality. So I think that's one of the things that happens organisationally. But equally, that's not to say, you know, and this all sounds slightly abstract in a way, it's not to say that there's actual, real, tremendous human suffering involved, particularly, you know, in, in young parents saying goodbye to young children. You know, I think one of the things perhaps thematically and this is anecdotally there's no research evidence here at all but I I think oftentimes younger people might be and families indeed may sort of close down slightly and be in greater denial because it's an unbearable reality to have one's life cut short so there's often something about how do you tentatively you sort of work with people to think about the impending realities. To go back to more of a maybe a practical question about the writing of the book, 
because you write about your mother living and dying with glioblastoma, but you've also written these fictionalized vignettes about clients and their experiences and your psychotherapy practice. And we were very interested in your combination of those two stories and also why are they fictionalized accounts of your clients? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's crucial, you know, when when I was doing my PhD in care homes, you know, there were there were lots of huge ethical considerations in terms of interviewing people with dementia and their staff team. There were all manner of consents to, you know, ensure that I had. Um, and in this instance, many of the people I work with have died. And so I think ethically, and also as a psychotherapist, we work within very sort of strict confidentiality agreements and ethically I think it's it's unsound I think unless you have consent to be writing about the people that you're working with I mean there is something also about storytelling within the therapeutic process so I think I wanted to have this sense of storytelling in the book as a therapist uh, you know and I don't want to overstate it because of course client you know clients don't just talk to you and tell their stories to you although some people do but I think you can become the sort of keeper of stories that doesn't mean that you're the owner of the stories and so I think that that was the distinction you know so I think it's more about you know in my mind was writing about sort of representative issues if you like rather than actual people now we'll move on to another book that you wrote, if that's all right, Esther, which is called Holding Time, Human Needs and Relationships in Dementia Care. Can you give us an overview of, of the content of this book, please? Yeah, the, sort of the, the overview of the book was, it was sort of the follow-up from PhD I did, which fully funded through the, through the OU. And I was, I was really lucky enough to, I don't know if you're, aware of her I was lucky enough to work with Gail Lewis and Peter Redman as Peter's backgrounds in social policy but Gail is a you know she's a, a feminist theorist and sociologist but also psychoanalytically informed psychotherapist and so it was it was a really sort of multidisciplinary approach really to understanding the relational field in dementia care homes so a bit like you, Rensko. I've, I was interested in the idea of home. I was interested in the way that home gets internalized. But the beginnings of the research were really, I'd worked in dementia care for many years. And at the point in which I put the proposal together, I wasn't working in care homes. But I think even though I wasn't working on site, I hadn't really left so in my actual work as a as a carer I think I was touched by so many people and I think when you encounter people in a sort of at an intimate level they don't leave your mind necessarily so they come people come back to life in their absence and so there were times you know, I just randomly think about people. So when I had my son as a newborn, I started thinking about really sort of thinking about what is this thing dependency? 
what what does it do to a mother particularly you know how how you know does a, a sort of mother that might be breastfeeding continually respond to the infant cries and I think I made a leap in my mind because at the time I kept thinking about some of the people with dementia I'd also worked with, particularly those people who were pre-verbal and where there was a real relationship between me as a carer and the person with dementia. You know, I, one of the women I worked with, the only word she could ever utter was no, but she was an incredible incredibly playful woman even though there was no sort of oh, the semantic losses were huge and but I also was thinking about dependency in older people pre-verbal how difficult that might be to encounter in a carer because the skin is not soft like a baby also there's not that you know, a newborn might be the sort of ultimate paradigm of an object of responsibility, but also an older person in that care dynamic, you're responsible for them. But that's not to say that, you know, mothers are these sort of holy, saintly subjects. They also have ambivalent feeling towards their newborn baby. So I was wondering about that, you know, what gets stirred up in terms of ambivalent feeling also in a carer are there any sort of correlation so that's where my research came from what is our relationship with dependency generally speaking but also in terms of older people living in these sort of institutionalized settings how do organizations cope with that how do you know how is the subjectivity if you like of a professional carer affected uh, by that constant sort of interplay or, or sort of holding of dependency and what might get projected into the cared for. And what about the carer's sense of dependency need as well? You know, who's responsive to that? So those are the sort of questions that started to emerge. That's where the research came. But the writing of it what what actually happened is I employed something called sort of psychoanalytically informed organizational observations. So I would sit in these spaces very quietly without a role. The idea being that you cultivate what Wilfred Bion calls a sense of reverie, which is a sort of open, free-floating attention to take in the kind of emotional texture of what's going on in the room between people so those affective flows if you like conscious and unconscious between people and try to pay attention to one's own feeling what's what's coming to mind but also all of the detail as well you know the actual what are people wearing what are they saying and so on and so forth so and part of the other part of the work was actually conducting sort of semi-structured interviews with staff members and people living with dementia. And then to look at that thematically, what was what were people telling me about the the sort of dynamics within within the home and the culture of organizations? I mean, the PhD then also looked at 
where are there overlaps in terms of national policy and practice? Where do they, where's their discontinuity, so on and so forth? How do notions in, in policy get into practice and into the psychic places of practitioners? So that was the research, if you like. The writing of it became very sort of ethnographic. So that again unfolded a little bit story-like, I think, following people's daily experiences in two different care home sites. And we would definitely recommend people go and, and get a copy of that that book to read. And both of your books, indeed, and they're also um, quite readily available, aren't they, to for, for people to access, which is nice. Academic books aren't, aren't always. And you do lots of sort of using vignettes and examples to make it really engaging. But we'd like to ask you now about the, the idea of relationality, which some listeners might be familiar with, others might not, and how you use psychoanalytic thinkers to situate your work, in particular in terms of why relationships are so important for people who live with dementia. Yeah. Well, dementia care, I think, has often been embedded in this idea of person-centred care. Now, that in it sounds as though it has a certain focus on the individual, you know, I think that is a sort of misreading to an extent of, of person-centred care because Tom Kitwood thought about dementia from a much more sort of... He was he was trying to counteract what he called a, a malignant social psychology. So sort of practices of dehumanisation, institutionalisation uh, in terms of dementia care. And the idea being that the routinization of care didn't, or the task orientedness, if you like, wasn't foregrounded over the experience of the individual living with dementia. So, so it, in a sense, his work was embedded within sort of social contexts. That was where his understanding emerged. I think the difference between a sort of person-centered approach which is about, you know, very much engaging with the individual, understanding their life history, so on and so forth. The difference is, is that a psychoanalytic approach looks much more closely at the detail, the mechanisms which are going on between people. So it's something about the interplay. What is getting communicated between two of us, three of us, whole systems and what are the underpinning mechanisms so I think that's why it might be you know quite important I think the other thing is is that oftentimes people living with dementia as I've already said begin to sort of move away from a kind of very cognitive rational orientation and psychodynamic approaches are very are, you're, you're working with the unconscious you're working with unconscious processes so the unconscious if you like is a sort of timeless non-linguistic non-linear space in our mind and so there's something about employing psychodynamic understanding as a way of beginning to understand what may have been being communicated in terms of, let's say, a form of sense sense data in people living with dementia who, who for whom words were are out of 
grasp. So I'm reminded as I'm talking about incredible work of Valerie Sinasson, who writes a, a really beautiful chapter of doing home visits with a man named Edward, who was an academic. And it's a really detailed account of what's going on relationally between them. And he's, you know, he becomes increasingly sort of his cognitive capacity becomes increasingly out of reach. And she at one point goes away and ends up writing poetry about her visits with him. And I think there is something in that because curiously enough, when I was doing the observations in care homes, one of the things I did was I wrote endless poetry throughout that time. And I think there's something about what in my field we'd call the sort of primacy of countertransference, which is, you know, what's getting into you as a practitioner. If you manage to hold that open stance of free-floating attention, what happens is is feeling, you know, intense feeling gets into you. It's unavoidable. And, you know, what poetry does, I think, in a way, is allow you to process the sheer muddle confusion the mess of all of those sort of uh, conflicting feelings that you might be noticing out there in the world but inside in yourself that you then take home and you know I think there in terms of the relational I think increasingly now we're thinking much more in dementia care of uh, systems as well you know, that yes, there might be a person central, but there are these configurations and constellations around that person. And, you know, how do we all communicate with one another, let's say, in such a way that the the person at the centre of our care is, is as well supported, you know, as possible. But equally, that involves caring for one another. So there's a certain democracy in all of that, perhaps. Thank you, Esther. It's great to have these reflections on on the arts and poetry and your writing processes, as well as this this wonderful uh, set of ideas about relationality. Now, we'll start to draw our interview to a close. And what we always like to ask our guests is, have you got any advice? We love advice. So we're, we're really interested in particular from your perspective of how someone might perhaps go about a career in palliative psychotherapy, if that's something that is of interest to them, or perhaps people are interested in, in working with dementia, but we're always open to other advice, even if that's go, go and write some poetry. <laughs> Gosh, you know what? Advice is really inviting me to come out of role. Therapists are always saying, no, we don't give advice. Um, <laughs> but so, well, I, I think from a therapeutic point of view, you know, it, it's really interesting how anyone ever gets into a career at a conscious level, you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, I mean, I remember me sort of convincing myself I was into philosophy and Heidegger and Heidegger talks about sort of being with the end in mind, if you like, or, you know, with a notion of finitude. And so, you know, on a sort of rational level, I was thinking, well, I'm interested in these things. How does one sort of engage with one's own life authentically? Well, you know, Having a having a really sort of definite sense of an ending helps you to sort of fo- sharpen your focus on the choices you're making. So that, you know, I think more unconsciously, perhaps, you know, the story I was brought up with was was that I I almost died in the womb, 
you know, so death, I think, is very was very much embedded in my own story right from the very beginning. So I think unconsciously I've I've got there because of these stories I've been told. But in terms of so I think it's curious if you're thinking about embarking a career on palliative psychotherapy or or, or working with people with dementia, is always a question to ask. Why might I be interested in that? You know, I think that's always worth worth asking oneself. But in terms of embarking on that, I think from a therapeutic point of view, it's about what kind of modality might you be interested in. So, you know, if, if you feel that you are someone that's, you know, more interested in working at a conscious level, cognitively, let's say, solutions focused, you might want to embark on one particular modality. You know, if you're in, invested in questions of meaning, you know, you might think about going down an existential path. If you're interested in very sort of the way that our early caregiving relationships may form us and how societal discourses may also get into those sort of private familial spaces, you might be thinking about going down a psychodynamic route. So those are those sort of early training questions to ask yourself. You know, in terms of practicing palliatively, I think often palliative psychotherapists end up in the NHS within palliative care teams or charity provisions that are offering palliative roles. And of course, bereavement charities might be another avenue. And then, you know, I think in terms of, you know, dementia care, I I sort of you know, in some ways fell into that. But I think I was always interested in language, language use and the production of language. And, you know, I was always very interested in the the different ways in which we communicate. And I think it's Julia Chris Saver who writes about the symbolic carapace failing in times of illness and particularly towards death and what she's talking about is the sort of way that language is both an enabler in terms of human relating but it can also be used defensively as a way of you know sounding I don't know clever intellectual and then it that in itself it excludes people from relating with you some way and I think I was always interested in I think it's Corbett who writes this idea of words as a second language. The idea being that the first language is, is without words, you know? And, um, so I think if, if you're interested in things like that, working with people with dementia, is just so beautifully rewarding. The kind of intimacy that you can experience in, in sort of states of wordlessness, let's say. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Esther. As we always say, we've got so many more questions we'd like to ask. <laughs> Isn't palliative psychotherapy just an absolutely wonderful phrase? And that I, do you know, I'd never even thought about it, I don't think. The idea of palliative psychotherapy. Me neither until I came across Esther's work. And also it's a word that's quite difficult to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, thinking back on what we were talking about in the intro, I was so struck by how Esther is doing all of the stuff she's doing. 
the teaching as an AL EOU. She's doing the palliative psychotherapy and this really vital work, working in these hubs, working with other people. And then at the same time, writing books. So what you might conceptualize as research in terms of developing the research from her PhD, but also as quite accessible writing, quite affordably priced writing, you know, that you can engage with, but also all this personal reflective stuff and creative writing. I just, I love this mix. I love this tapestry that Esther's woven together for for her own career and, and between her life and her work. What I found really interesting to listen to as well when she was talking about uh, the book The Silly Thing that is a mixture of things but it's also about like her mom dying and that she thought uh, initially thought of it as a way to like to some extent come to terms with the death of her mother and her own feelings and her own grief and all of it and that she actually came to the end of it and thought <laughs> actually it didn't do any of the things I thought it would do and it was maybe more an avoidance tactic than actually engaging with the death of my mom yeah I've got that written down that that she said go to write she goes to writing as a way of making sense of experience because that really resonated with with me I also go to writing as a way to make sense of experience and to reading but actually in hindsight it can also be a way of avoiding and sitting with the ambivalence of that both of those things being true it's both a way of making sense and a way of trying to avoid making sense at the same time which I just think is so it speaks to the the kind of truth of living in these really difficult places where lots of things can be true at once and she talked too about that how do you be at ease with the multiplicity of selves that are in within each of us so sometimes we talk about tricky concepts or difficult terms in your own research around the home and the importance of unpacking ideas about the home I hadn't really thought in depth about the term dependency before this interview and that really got me thinking about what that means and and as Esther was saying the kind of quite neoliberal capitalist context of our lives and the tensions between dependency vulnerability to be dependent on someone else what that means and to be independent which is so venerated and and how do you sit with the difficulty of that I, I thought that was really, really thoughtful and I would like to, yeah, read a bit more, think a bit more about this term dependency and what it means. No, I agree. It's also, because during my PhD, I've also thought about that term a lot and and it's so, like, in the independence is praised and put on a pedestal of this is what people want, but I think it, it, it's a very tricky subject to to really discuss and get a hold of but I find with a lot of older people who are living in their own houses I find that notion of independence fascinating especially sometimes if people become more frail how many people does it actually take taking care of someone for that person to be independent quote-unquote so I think there are so many layers to that and so many different ways you could also interpret that because we all are relational and social beings and we all get help from other people, but there's something about aging and being an older person and getting help that puts you in a dependency level that is different than, for example, people our age. I think maybe also because if we need more help or are dependent on someone, there's perhaps the expectation that that's temporary, whereas if you're older, that it might be forever. I think, yeah, as you say, there are so many different 
avenues you could explore with the dependent independent mm. and i loved how she connected it to mothering and motherhood and how being a baby and, and the mother baby relationship is this kind of paradigm of, of the good sense of responsibility even though as we talked about before on this podcast mothers can have very ambivalent feelings too <laughs> about children about mothering about how that can take away your own independence as you support someone through their utter dependence there is so much to, to mull over and I think that too ties into this sort of neoliberal context of very ingrained capitalism of women losing their independence for a period of time as they provide care to children and of course not not just women but it, it is very much the dominant idea positions it as, as just being women as you then stop being sort of supposedly economically productive or there's this idea women have to be doing it all to be mothering working and that can be quite antithetical to then things like responsive parenting and breastfeeding that require you to physically be there I've, I've noticed quite a lot of a shift in some of the discourse around like from breastfeeding to breast milk there's a really nice book by Kimberly Allen Sears about breastfeeding in the US and and she talks a lot about the idea that breast milk is seen as this fantastic thing but as separate from the practice of breastfeeding and as separate from mothers actually so you might for example there's like whole companies apparently that ship breast milk all across the US because people want to give continue giving breast milk even though they're not physically near their children and that sort of scene is this great thing there's all sorts of advertising campaigns and public health messaging around breast milk but not the physical practice of breastfeeding and the dependency that that entails not to sound really weird, I find breastfeeding also fascinating because of that, because there is this relationship between the mother and the child and the closeness. And But also <laughs> I, I have a, a friend with a three-year-old and when she came off the boob, it was really a fight and she would like run up to her mom and like <laughs> try to still get hold of it. And uh, there is something about your being close to your child but also your body kind of not being fully your own but it's this lovely relationship but also there was a point where where this mother was at some point like i've had enough now but also it breaks my heart to say no to my child because she still wants to have that closeness and is your body ever fully your own an interesting one to, mm. to reflect on it's been raised and touched and nurtured by someone regardless of what infant feeding practice we've used it's and another thing that really stood out for me in terms of, again, what we were talking about at the beginning was we've got a mutual interest in language studies. We both teach languages in, in different ways. And the idea of semantic losses is something you might grieve and, and might have complicated feelings about as you are approaching the end of life or, or throughout your life, if, if that's something that goes for you, that you no longer have this opportunity to articulate yourself through language, but can still be playful, still be joyful, still find other ways of doing things it's I just I'm not really reflected on that notion of a semantic loss before and I think Esther's just got good phrases really interesting phrases I I, I could listen to Esther for a long time with that like the semantic losses and the loss of language and I don't know how you feel about it but I found it particularly painful for someone who worked as an English language teacher and who had language as their job and as their like identity I feel there's something if you would have been something completely different, I maybe would think, well, she she lost her, her words, etc. But I felt it's particularly painful because of her identity and her 
enjoyment of words and language as an individual. Yes, it's got an uncomfortable poetry to it, hasn't it? Of, of yeah, the idea of a, a pianist losing their hands, or of yeah, someone who's completely in love with reading losing their eyesight. There's this kind of an awkward, painful symmetry to it that that feels unfair. And I suppose that's part of a story that we might tell ourselves, you know, that because it makes a nice story, doesn't it? Someone who's an English teacher who then loses language. There's, I think people, I'm attracted to the storiness of that. So it was interesting to listen to Esther think about storytelling in a therapeutic process. I spend quite a lot of time reflecting on the fact that everything I think about myself is is kind of a story and that however I position my experience, I'm positioning it in a particular way. Someone could position it in a different way. You know, I'm telling myself a story about myself and about my experience all the time. And it's not that I'm acknowledging that there isn't a story. There is one. There are many, many stories. But I'm trying to step a little outside of it and recognise it as such to, uh, and think about how I relate to those stories simply because it's, yeah, something that really interests me is the, the sort of stories we tell or don't tell about ourselves and, and why we might do that. So it's great to to see how Esther's worked that sort of thinking into writing as a way of making sense of her experience, but also opportunities for people to utilise storytelling as a therapeutic thing. I think it fits quite well with some other episodes we've had. Well, I've, I definitely felt like there were, was overlap with Mandy Goslin's episode. Also, on the one hand, them both being therapists, but very different it was definitely Mandy's episode, but also because that episode touches on uh, Mandy's mother's death as well. For, for me, Gail Leatherby stood out as well. Mm. Because, yeah, again, thinking about mothers and the loss of mothers, but also thinking about writing as, as this way of reflecting on things. And now, probably after this, I, I, I'll be like, oh, and this episode, and this episode. <laughs> you start to see the connections over time, don't you? And, and start to think, yeah, actually, there's, there's a lot of commonality across so much of the research that's been talked about here and the practice too. Absolutely. And I think for anyone listening, we, we always love to hear your thoughts and feelings. So if there's anything in Esther's story that really resonated with you, do let us know either via email or via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We love to hear about your stories as well. So if there's anything in this episode that sparked a story or a memory we'd love to hear about that and we hope you enjoyed this episode thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedeafstudypodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment follow us on social media at the deaf podcast and of course spread the word